You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning, everybody. Please turn to John chapter 20. We're in John chapter 20 this morning. And we'll start right off here. I know some of you know who this is. Um, This is Stephen Hawking. He is considered to be one of the most brilliant theoretical physicists and cosmologists in history. And he has spent his life studying and writing about the origin and structure of the universe. Now he is confined to a wheelchair because he has amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, which is sometimes also called Lou Gehrig's disease. Now over the years... Hawking has made numerous statements uh, relating to, to God and matters of faith. For a time, it seemed as though he at least allowed for the possibility of the existence of God, but he has come out in later years stating explicitly that he is an atheist who believes that God does not exist. So we should not be surprised by this quote from 2011 by Mr. Hawking concerning any sort of life after death. This is what he said. I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Well, and that's where he's coming from. And I understand that. This is essentially the atheist perspective. When you die, whatever it is that makes you, you, disappears and you cease to exist. And this life is all there is. Death is the end. And if that is the atheist perspective, then you would expect Christians, and especially Christian ministers, to have exactly the opposite outlook. If we were to interview the ministers and church leaders from all groups that claim connection to the name Christian, we might expect to find universal support for life after death, and especially for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here are some troubling statistics. According to a 1998 survey of nearly 7,500 Protestant ministers, a significant number of those ministers doubted that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. Specifically, among American Lutherans, 13% doubted that Christ rose from the dead. Among Presbyterians, 30% of those interviewed, those uh, surveyed, Uh, Among American Baptists, 33% doubted Christ's resurrection. From uh, Episcopalians, 35%. And among Methodist ministers in 1998, fully 51%, more than half, doubted that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. And I find myself hoping that somehow those statistics are skewed, that they're not an accurate representation of uh, what ministers from those denominations actually believe. But that was the survey that was done. Now last week we looked at John chapter 19, which relates the crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ. If the Gospel of John stopped with chapter 19, if we didn't also have 
Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, and Luke chapter 24, I could perhaps understand the reluctance of these ministers to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. But praise God that John's gospel does not end with chapter 19. John chapter 20 is the declaration of one who describes himself repeatedly in his writings as an eyewitness, John himself, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And it is this event that is the foundation of faith for all who would believe. Today's message is called, The Resurrection is Real. And we'll begin in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had come first to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Uh, and one of the things that I think is important for us to do as we read the scriptures is to try to put ourselves in the place of the people who were actually there uh, when those events were occurring. For example, you and I may read John chapter 20 already knowing what is going to happen. So for us, those events are ancient history. It's easy for us to fast forward through the chapter because you know, we're so familiar with it. But for the people who were actually there that day, these events unfolded for them, like the events of your days do for you. Sometimes very unexpected things uh, can occur that, that change our lives dramatically. As we look at John chapter 20 today, let's try to experience these events for the first time, along with Mary Magdalene, Peter and John, Thomas, and the others. Now, Jesus was crucified on Friday by most accounting. I know there's some dispute about that. Let's call it Friday today. Now we know this is not in dispute. It is very early on Sunday morning. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea must have been somewhat hurried in their preparial, excuse me, they're preparing Jesus' body for burial because Mark and Luke tell us that several of the women who were associated with Jesus came to the tomb with more spices to anoint his body. So, Apparently they felt those preparations had not been complete. They were even concerned about how they would gain access to Jesus' body because they believed that they would not be able to roll away that stone, perhaps much like the one you see on the screen there that covered the entrance to the tomb. As John wrote his gospel, he introduced Mary Magdalene as one of those who was standing nearby while Jesus was crucified. That the first time we see her, and this chapter is the only other time we see her in John's gospel. Though there were several women involved, we get that from the other gospel, John focuses on Mary Magdalene to tell what happened first on that Sunday morning. And when Mary saw the stone already removed from the entrance to the tomb, and though John does not say that she looked inside to see that the tomb was empty, 
She told Peter and John that the tomb was empty, and so we're guessing that she did. At that point, she came to the conclusion, we're, again, we're putting ourselves in her place, she came to the conclusion that they, someone, had come and taken Jesus' body away. The Romans, the Jews, she didn't know, but somebody had, according to her. Apparently, Mary never even considered the possibility that Jesus had risen from the dead. I mean, that's not on her radar, as we would say it. Her concern was that the Lord's body would not be cared for properly. And I think that she believed that her last opportunity to serve him had been taken away from her. You think about the devotion that she had and what she wanted to do that morning. And now, as far as she can tell, that opportunity is gone. When Peter and John heard what Mary was saying... They took off running for the tomb. And we read that. And for us, you know, that may not sound like such a big deal. But it has been said, and I've read this in several places. I, I try to, you know, verify these things, and I have a hard time doing that sometimes. But it has been said that in first century Palestine, grown men such as these simply did not run. Okay? It wasn't dignified. It wasn't something they did. Some say that when Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son... His listeners would have been shocked when the father in the story saw his son while he was still a long way off and the father ran to meet him because that just isn't done. And they would have, they would have you know, shuddered or, or gasped when they heard that in the story. Whatever the case, Peter and John ran. They ran to the tomb. John, possibly being younger and faster than Peter, maybe in better shape, who knows, uh, he arrived at the tomb first. And he, the, the word used there means that he squinted. He squinted in trying to see. You know, as, as you have, even in that early morning light, lighter outside than it is inside. And so the, the difference in the lighting is going to make that a little more uh, difficult. At that point, he saw the linen used to wrap Jesus' body lying there. Uh, but he did not enter the tomb, perhaps trying to process what he was seeing. Peter, though, was less cautious when he arrived. He enters the tomb immediately. He saw the same thing John saw, but he also saw a separate cloth that had been around the face or head of Jesus. It's rolled up or folded and sitting away from the linen burial cloth. And about that time, John enters the tomb and sees the other cloth as well. Now, remember Mary's belief here. She thought that Jesus' body had been taken away by someone. But these linen cloths lying there seem to tell a different story. Why would anyone remove the linen cloth from around the body before transporting it? I mean, having the body wrapped up would only have made it easier to carry. And so in what may have been sort of a first century CSI moment, John deduces that Jesus' body has not been stolen but that Jesus is, in fact, alive somehow, somewhere. His resurrection is real. Now, that's all still sinking in. It's all still processing. And verse 9 seems to indicate that if Jesus' disciples had understood the Scriptures fully at this point, not only would they have believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but they would have been waiting at the tomb in anticipation of that event. I mean, if you were convinced... Well, yeah, we watched him die on the cross. Yeah, we saw them take him down. We saw them put his body, take it away and, and prepare it and put it in the tomb and, and put the stone over there. But we know what's coming. And so we're going to go down there. We're going to camp out until he shows up again, right? At least I would if I were them. 
Peter may also have believed at this time or shortly thereafter based on what we read in Luke. But the other nine disciples have not yet reached that point of believing that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so this is not a, a universal thing. It's very much an individual thing, just as faith is for you and I. Let's go on to verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, at what point Mary returns and looks in the tomb again, we are not told, but we are told that she is weeping, and some translations say crying. Practically all of them use one of those words. Now, please do not picture someone who is sniffling a little, dabbing her eyes lightly as the tears silently squeeze themselves from the corners of her eyelids. What Mary is doing here is full-on, near-hysterical, sobbing and wailing. It's loud, and it's not pretty. Okay, And you might say that she is beside herself with grief, not only because Jesus has died, but because his body is gone, and proper burial will now be impossible. For the Jews, that was a big deal. Meant a lot to them. If they weren't allowed to prepare the body and place it in the, in the tomb the way they, uh, according to their customs, that they were uh, convinced that things were not going to be uh, what, what they ought to be. It was, it was a big deal for them. So we can understand, perhaps, that Mary doesn't stop to question these two strangers who are clothed in white and sitting inside the tomb where Jesus' body is supposed to be. Under any other circumstances, it would have been, what are you guys doing here? What's going on? But not here. Not now. There is nothing normal about the day that Mary is having. So something as surreal as an encounter with a couple of angels sort of fades into the background compared with Mary's overwhelming grief. The angels ask her why she is crying. She thinks it's because they want an explanation. In fact, they are suggesting to her that she has no reason to cry. But Mary doesn't get that yet. See, They're not communicating quite on the same level. So she turns around possibly with the intent of continuing to look for Jesus' body or for someone who can tell her where his body is. And John tells us that she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. She got some things working against her. I can think of at least three, probably more, uh, things that are working against her as she fails to recognize Jesus. First of all, of course, is the sobs that continued to rack her body and the volume of tears that were probably still uh, flowing. And those things would give her a physical reason not to perceive that it is Jesus standing there. 
Secondly, her intense grief over his death and uh, his seemingly absent body would give her an uh, emotional reason not to perceive that it is Jesus standing there. And the fact that she watched him die on the cross, and she was there, she saw it happen. This would give her a logical reason not to perceive that it is Jesus standing there. Even when Jesus speaks to her, she remains fixed in her understanding that Jesus is dead and his body is gone. And this person, who she assumes to be the caretaker of the garden there, might be the one who moved his body. And you have to pause right there just for a second because something happens that changes everything. In that moment of overwhelming grief, of almost uncontrollable hysterical sobbing, of of this uh, knowledge of I saw him with my own two eyes and I watched him die, Jesus calls Mary by name. And in that moment, Mary's tears of despair are replaced with tears of happiness. Her grief is replaced with amazement and joy and the reality of Jesus' death as Mary's mental focus is replaced with the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus is alive and the resurrection is real. So after Mary, or excuse me, after Jesus gets Mary to let go, imagine that might have been a bit of a trick, probably of his lower legs and feet where she has knelt down and wrapped her arms around him. Now that she's found him, not going to separate her, not going to let go of him. Uh, she, he gets her to let go. Mary hurries off and tells the rest of the disciples that she saw Jesus, not his body, she saw Jesus alive and that he had spoken to her. She has done what Jesus told her to do. And and though it seems as though most of the disciples don't believe her, now they are prepared for their own encounter with Jesus. So we go to verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, we don't know exactly why the disciples were gathered together that Sunday evening. Perhaps they were discussing what they were going to do now that Jesus had been crucified. Maybe Peter and John had their own stories to tell. Uh, Now they've got uh, this message from Mary, and they're wondering what to do with that information. We don't really know. What we do know is that they had the doors, plural, locked barred, whatever, barricaded, because they were afraid of the Jews. And uh, now that Jesus had been put to death, they may have wondered if they were going to be next in that process. And behind those locked doors, Jesus suddenly appears. 
Now, much has been written about the nature of Jesus' post-resurrection body that would allow him to be touched and to eat food like anyone else, but that would also allow him to pass through doors without opening. Now, while there may be something to talk about there, wouldn't it be safe to say that someone who could walk on water or feed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, or who could raise people from the dead, somebody who could do those things, wouldn't you say that that person could easily probably pass through a door or a wall if he wanted to? I mean, Jesus did all those things before he was crucified. Why would something like this be even more amazing after? I see this as a continuation of who Jesus has always demonstrated himself to be. Jesus goes on then to show his hands and his sides to the disciples, his hands and his side, so they can be sure it really is Jesus who stands before them. Twice, Jesus extends his peace to them, which they most certainly needed. I mean, it's a common greeting, yes, but I think there's more to it here. They needed an antidote to their fear and to their doubt, and his peace would provide that. What they needed even more was faith. That Jesus really is alive and they rejoice when they realize that indeed the resurrection is real. Now there's some confusion about what exactly happened when Jesus breathed on the disciples and told them to receive the Holy Spirit. It definitely seems to be distinct and separate from the way the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it seems to be different from the gift of the Holy Spirit given to those who are saved and those and who are in Christ. But it is confusing. So, you know, not really going to spend a lot of time on that. What is not confusing is that Jesus commissioned these ten men, and later that includes Thomas, uh, in my opinion anyway, as being specially sent by Jesus, even as Jesus was specially sent by God the Father in the same way. It was through these men that the church would be established and that the gospel message of salvation would be introduced into the world, offering forgiveness to all who would accept that gospel message as truth and who would submit to the apostles' teachings about Jesus. The Holy Spirit would empower them to correctly establish the church and to add to and define the teaching of Jesus, which is what the rest of the New Testament is really uh, all about. This would then establish the body of doctrine for Christianity. All of this, all of this would depend on one thing. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has just proved to his disciples that the resurrection is real. Go on to verse 24. But Thomas... One of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, And stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. 
and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now, because Thomas was not there that first Sunday evening, the day of the resurrection, and because he did not believe the words of the rest of the disciples, he's often referred to as Doubting Thomas. Everybody knows that, right? And that sometimes seems like a bit of, you know, criticism or ridicule even, as though his faith was somehow weak or deficient compared to that of the rest of the disciples. But remember what we're doing here. Let's put ourselves into Thomas' place as the other disciples are claiming to have seen Jesus alive, but he wasn't there. Is his doubt of their claims any different than the doubt the other disciples had after hearing Mary Magdalene tell about seeing Jesus alive? That's not in John's Gospel. That's in one of the other Gospels. But they did. They heard her story. And they said, this makes no sense. You're kidding me, right? Was Thomas possibly there at the crucifixion, seeing for himself that Jesus actually died? Like Mary had. I mean, she eyes on it, saw it happen, knew he was dead. Now you're saying he's not? Is it so wrong for Thomas to want to have the same experience the rest of the disciples had? You're saying he showed you his hands? He showed you his... I want that. I want that too. Even John's belief was based on seeing the empty tomb and the way the linen cloths were arranged there. I, for one at least, understand Thomas' reluctance to accept the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead. So eight days pass. It says here, after Jesus' first appearance to his disciples, and the way they would have counted that, that would have been eight days counting the Sunday of the day and the Sunday, we believe they met again on Sunday night here. Sunday to Sunday, you count both Sundays, it's eight days. We would say a week later. Okay. So again on Sunday, the disciples gathered together. Only this time, Thomas is there. Once again, the door is locked. Once again, Jesus appears in their midst with a greeting of peace. And I like this part because rather than just show up and wait for Thomas to make the first move, immediately Jesus turns his his attention to Thomas and he addresses the doubts that Thomas expressed, specifically telling him, go ahead, touch his hands where the nails were. Go ahead, put his hand into Jesus' side where Jesus was pierced by the spear. And I like that part because Jesus knew exactly what was going on inside Thomas. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had said to the other disciples. He knew exactly what the source of his doubts were and what Thomas had said. So he said he offered Thomas the proof that Thomas had demanded to have before he would believe that Jesus was alive. Now, even though... Jesus offered Thomas that opportunity. We are not told that Thomas actually touched Jesus' hands inside. There's actually some indication that perhaps the other uh, disciples did. Uh, John, in 1 John, uh, writes, What we have seen with our eyes and what we have touched with our hands. Now, whether that's a reference to this event or not, we don't know. But it's a possibility. 
Thomas recognized Jesus, though, in the same way the other disciples had recognized Jesus. Now all his doubts were replaced by faith. And that faith seemed even more transforming for Thomas in some, in some way than the other disciples' faith did for them. Thomas does not simply rejoice that Jesus is alive. How do you process this? And I you know, may be oversimplifying this because no two people respond to things like this in exactly the same way, right? But Thomas does not simply rejoice that Jesus is alive. He declares his faith in Jesus, his recognition of Jesus as both Lord and God. And as I envision this scene, that's all it is, this is just my imagination working here. At this point, Thomas falls to his knees at least, and possibly even falls completely prostrate before Jesus. But John doesn't tell us whether that happened or not. That would be my, that would be my guess as to his reaction, but we don't know. Whatever the case, Thomas saw for himself that the resurrection was real, and so he believed. And you think, you know, Jesus is giving some credit here. Uh, Jesus doesn't really say, well, you know, good for you, Thomas, right? Jesus uses that moment to give recognition to all who would believe in him and his resurrection without seeing it for themselves. He said to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And for Jesus, able to see forward in time like you and I can't, he would see all those who would come to faith in him without having been there, without having seen him alive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes about many who saw Jesus after his resurrection. There were the 11 apostles, presumably also Matthias, who replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1. There was James, the brother of Jesus. Paul himself saw Jesus as Paul was traveling to Damascus to persecute the Christians there. And at one point, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, more than 500 people at one time saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Yeah. There were many eyewitnesses to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the time came, now long ago, when all of those eyewitnesses passed away. No one is alive today who was there in that 40-day period between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Nobody is alive today who was there. Stephen saw Jesus after that, at the end of Acts chapter 7, while Jesus was in heaven and standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was in the process of being stoned to death, so he was uh, going to be there in person shortly. But anyway, at that point, uh, he saw the heavens open. And Jesus standing there at the right hand of God. Paul saw Jesus after that when Jesus spoke to him from heaven on the road to Damascus, as we mentioned before. And John, the gospel writer here, John the, the fisherman, he, he saw Jesus after that when he had the vision that he wrote down in the book of Revelation. There are even ongoing reports today. Uh, some of you are aware of Jesus appearing to people, for example, in Muslim countries who have encountered teaching about Jesus, but they are struggling with that. And their culture and their, their Muslim religion is pulling them this way and telling them one thing, and they're hearing these other things about Jesus. And there are reports 
I'm not standing in judgment of these reports one or the other, but there are reports that Jesus has appeared and has been appearing to people in those situations, telling them that he really is the Savior that they're looking for. That's pretty cool, if that's what's happening. But for the vast majority of people since the close of the first century, seeing Jesus in person simply not going to happen. Not in this life. And the good news there is that it doesn't have to. The testimony of God's word is sufficient for anyone to believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. If they will take it at face value. The testimony that we find here is sufficient. He really did die on the cross. He really was buried in a tomb. And he really did rise from the dead. And he did all that because he is the Savior that every one of us needs and that every one of us ought to be looking for. Now, usually at this point in the message, I would start a conclusion summarizing what we just studied in the Scriptures here. But you probably noticed, if you're following along, that we still have two more verses in this chapter. Instead of offering a conclusion uh, at this point, I want to go straight to the invitation. And here's why. As we have studied the Gospel of John, we have seen John make the case for Jesus as God, pre-existent in eternity past and creating the universe. We have seen John make the case for Jesus as the Son of God, sent into the world to do God's will and to speak God's words. We have seen John make the case for Jesus as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world through his willing sacrifice of himself, laying down his life voluntarily, taking it up again by his own power and authority. And much of John's case for each of these things rests on the signs and miracles that Jesus performed as he turned, for example, water into fruit of the vine in Cana. He healed the sick in Galilee and Jerusalem and other places fed the multitudes with a small amount of food, even raised Lazarus and a couple of other people from the dead. And now, John had demonstrated Jesus didn't just die on the cross, but he rose from the dead himself. Perhaps the greatest miracle he ever performed. Why is that important? Well, here's why. Several times in our study of John, we have referred to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I've called these verses the theme of the book of John. And indeed, I believe that they summarize the purpose for which John wrote his gospel. They are the verses that call upon every reader of John's gospel to make a decision. You have to answer the question. At some point, what do you say about Jesus? Well, here's what the last two verses of John chapter 20 say. <clears throat> Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so I have to ask, has John made a compelling case in presenting Jesus as God, as the Son of God, the Savior, the Lamb of God, in his teaching, 
In his miracles and in his sinless life, Jesus demonstrates that he is the Savior that you're looking for, or the Savior you should be looking for if you're not already. Has anyone else ever been demonstrated to be God in the flesh like Jesus? Has anyone else ever proved themselves to be the Son of God like Jesus has? The answer to both of those questions, of course, is no. And the Apostle Paul, again appealing to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says that it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes all the difference. If Jesus has not been raised, then your faith, I don't care what you believe, your faith is worthless and you're still dead in your sins. But if the resurrection is real, as John has clearly shown that it is, then if you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, you have a wonderful thing to look forward to. You yourself will rise from the dead when Jesus returns. You'll be transformed from a perishable being into an imperishable being, and you'll be able to go to that place that Jesus promised that he was preparing for his followers, where you'll spend forever with him. All that, all that, because the resurrection is real. And it, your resurrection is offered to you through faith in Jesus because of his resurrection. Do you believe? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If you believe that, if your answer is yes, and you're ready to receive the salvation that Jesus offers, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.